Hello and welcome to the podcast, Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Hey, good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you scrutinize your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. Today, we're going to talk about redemption in the secular meaning of the word. What do we really believe about redemption after misdeeds? We all love a good redemption story, that's for sure. But what is the path to redemption? How long does it take? What should it entail? How do we know when someone has walked it? How can we be sure? Or can we ever really be sure? We have three real-life scenarios to lead us through this difficult discussion today. The first is from a work associate of mine. She shared this with me. Quote, My parents had a friend who killed his wife during a marital argument. He ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter, went to prison, and came out after 10 or 12 years. My parents resumed their friendship with him. Actually, my father had also visited him in prison. But not all the people in their circle felt so forgiving, and some of them would never have anything to do with him again after he got out of prison. It created some strained relationships between the forgivers and the non-forgivers. And I should say, I don't know the details of the crime, but I think it was a heated marital argument that got out of hand, got physical, and took a bad turn. I don't think it was anything premeditated. So Mike, I'm going to turn to you first and get your thoughts. You know, Marna, I look at this situation and I'm struck by the generosity of the parents of your friend who forgave this man and made an effort to bring him back into society after he'd paid his debt. We can only only imagine that he was repentant, he was contrite, he obviously spent a very long time in prison. Again, I'm, I'm assuming that he was absolutely devastated and heartbroken by what happened. Now, yes, someone died, but I think it speaks to the generosity of uh, the two of the parents of your friend to not only visit him in prison, but to forgive him. We're expected to forgive. I think if we don't forgive as human beings, we live a very lonely life. So that's the angle I see on this one. Uh, of course, there's many ways to approach this, and I'm anxious to hear what each of you have to say. Yeah, and it sounds like in that circle of friends, there were some people who were never going to forgive this gentleman, even though he spent 10 or 12 years in prison which, you know, begs the question, is there a path to redemption? Can you ever really be through it? Yeah, I, I'm a believer in a path to redemption. I really am, because I've seen it in many, many situations in life where people made huge mistakes, made very, very, exercised very, very poor judgment, and uh, they weren't to the level of severity of this scenario. But, you know, little things where it would be very easy for people to turn them off for the rest of their lives. And, uh, and I don't think I don't think we benefit as a as a society. We don't benefit as families if we if we do that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. This is a pretty severe crime, but this is one of those incidents where I would think there, but for the grace of God, go I. Uh, I disagree, Marna. I think in many cases there, but for the grace of God, go I. I think in a case of domestic violence that ends in death, I would say that that wouldn't be the case for 
most individuals. I know we shouldn't assume facts, not in evidence, but we don't have a lot of facts here. My guess is that there was a pattern of domestic violence, um, having practiced law and having been a criminal defense attorney for over 10 years. Domestic violence is an absolute scourge on society. It's a terrible problem. And my guess is that was what was going on here. Um, There was probably a pattern of abuse, and in this situation, it resulted in her death. Manslaughter is the killing of one human being by another under the law, and there's voluntary manslaughter, which is intentional, an intentional killing, but not premeditated, and then there's involuntary manslaughter, which is an unintentional killing, but where your conduct is so gross and wanton and beyond the pale that it results in the death of another. So we don't know here if this was a voluntary or involuntary manslaughter, but nonetheless, a serious crime. When it comes to forgiveness, I agree with a lot of things that Mike said, and I've spent a lot of time visiting clients in prison or in local jails, and it is so difficult and such a harsh and lonely place. Having said that, this individual certainly belongs there. I can certainly empathize with some of the couples or families that don't want to have a relationship with this gentleman. You know, they shouldn't be hating on the other couples, but it's certainly understandable. She's not coming back. This isn't something where you've made a mistake and you're trying to recover and there were some consequences. This is the ultimate consequence. So I can understand those parties just sort of detaching. They accept that this gentleman's taken responsibility for his actions, but they just don't want to have anything to do with him and perhaps they can't understand or wrap their head around these folks wanting to have a continuing relationship with this person. Yeah, I'm guessing that my friend's father had a pretty good friendship with this man and believed in him and believed that there probably was not a history of domestic abuse. Otherwise, I don't think my friend's dad would have continued the relationship or visited him in prison. Yeah, it's just hard to believe A man who hasn't been physical with his wife before suddenly became physical and killed her. It's pretty much unheard of. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. And you have that that background. Hey, I have a question. What is an example? What's a scenario in which voluntary manslaughter would have happened? Usually it's, it's a heat of passion situation. It arises very quickly. There's no opportunity for premeditation and So like a bar brawl, maybe? Yeah, I mean, a bar brawl, I would try to argue that's involuntary. But yeah, a bar brawl is a perfect example where you you become enraged, you, you know, you stab somebody. A punch, you might be able to say, was involuntary. It was an unintentional killing because you, you couldn't foresee that that one punch would result in death. But a stabbing maybe would, would be voluntary because you'd have to say that that was intentional. You stabbed somebody in the chest. It wasn't premeditated, heat of passion, and it resulted in the death. Okay. Everything I know about the legal system, I learned on law and order. So, (laughs) (laughs) Involuntary often can be, you know, a drunk driving situation. There are many states have statutes that address that where somebody is just absolutely out of their mind drunk. Their blood alcohol content is two or three times the legal limit. All right. Well, this one is a tough scenario. And I guess from what I know, 
of it. There are people who are never going to let this gentleman back into their fold of friends and some people who are. That's everybody's that's personal their decision. Choice. Yeah. yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, forgiveness is really between him and his God and his family, but folks don't want to have anything to do with him and are frustrated at others who do. I, I think that's understandable. Yeah. You know, one additional comment there. I'm, I'm always struck by people who come out of a situation like this, a life-changing event, um, in this case, very, very serious, and try to restart their lives in the same place. We live in a country with lots of opportunities and lots of options, and to step back into your same environment, I don't have a specific opinion there, but it's, it just always strikes me as unusual. Yeah. And I'm struck also by the length of the prison sentence. Ten years in prison, that's a long time to be in prison. If you think about what you've done the last decade and spending it in prison, I mean, I can't imagine anybody not being changed by that experience. Ten years for the death of someone? I mean, you have people with drug offenses that serve more time than that. I mean, I would argue that you probably have a white, wealthy defendant who beat on his wife regularly and killed her and got away with it and only had to serve 10, 10 years. Whereas if it was a minority defendant, you know, with crack cocaine, you know, they could end up with a 15-year sentence. And a record of prior convictions? Well, sometimes under guidelines, depending upon, you know, states, et cetera, they may not even have a significant record. They just can't afford strong counsel. They're not putting on a good defense. They just don't have the same advantages that people from the middle or upper class have. Yeah. Sounds like another topic for another show, Kelly. Yeah, definitely. But bottom line, serving 10 years for killing somebody, I think you've done pretty well as a defendant. Okay. We'll be back in a moment with our second scenario. Stay with us. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. Today we're talking about the path to redemption, and our second scenario is the Michael Vick story. And I'll provide some background for listeners who aren't familiar with the story. My research material came from CNN.com, WHYY.org, ESPN.com, and an AP article by Larry O'Dell. In 2001, Michael Vick was a Virginia Tech football player who became the overall first-round draft pick for the Atlanta Falcons. In 2007, Vic pleaded guilty to conspiracy involving illegal dogfighting and operating a business enterprise that involved illegal gambling. The judge called Vic's conduct in this conspiracy heinous, cruel, and inhumane. Vic was sentenced to 23 months in federal prison and served 18 months at Leavenworth, Kansas. During this time, he filed for bankruptcy. After his release from federal custody in July of 2009 and reinstatement to the NFL, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles and in 2010 became the starting quarterback. His $100 million contract made him one of the highest earning players in the NFL. Nike also penned an endorsement deal with Vic. Vic later signed deals with the Jets and Steelers. His 2017 retirement ceremony was hosted by the Atlanta Falcons. The Michael Vick Project is a 10-part documentary on BET, chronicling the 2009 widely publicized and criticized plummet of the NFL player. PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, objected to this documentary, saying, Michael Vick may deserve to walk free, but he doesn't deserve to be a football star or a hero to children. Executives for BET, Black Entertainment Television, said, It's important for us to capture this moment to see what someone does when they have the opportunity to rebuild themselves. It might serve as a roadmap for young men facing the same challenge. 
Since his release from federal prison in 2009, Vic has worked in several capacities as an animal rights activist. The NFL recently announced that Michael Vick will be one of the captains in the 2020 Pro Bowl in January. More than 400,000 people have signed an online petition to remove him as one of the captains. Question, has Michael Vick redeemed himself? Is it even possible for him to redeem himself? Kelly, what do you think? Yeah, I think Michael Vick has definitely redeemed himself. Um, There's no doubt in my mind. He accepted responsibility for what happened. He pled guilty. He served 18 months in prison. He was released in 2009, so it's not like it happened yesterday. He's been out for 10 years. He was suspended from the NFL. He ended up bankrupt. He had to work through all that. I think he is a perfect example of somebody where it's not what happens to you, but it's how you handle it. You know, that's what people say is the measure of a man, not what happens to him, but how they respond to it. And I think he's made amends. He's accepted responsibility. He's done a ton of work with the Humane Society of the United States. He's learned from it. He has a very, he comes from a difficult background in Tidewater, Virginia. He didn't have a lot growing up. He didn't have great role models. He's quoted as saying, as the best thing to do was to make amends for what I did. I can't take it back. And I think that's true. If people don't like it, don't watch the Pro Bowl. Don't watch the NFL. Contact sponsors. But I applaud the NFL for choosing him as one of their captains and allowing people to see, especially young people from similar backgrounds, that this is something you can overcome. So you're saying his path to redemption was the going to prison and coming to terms with what he did, acknowledging it and making the amends he needed to. He's walked his path. Let's let it go. Absolutely. And he was punished severely, and he has worked for years now with animal rights organizations. So I feel he's really done more than enough to address his wrongdoing. Also, I just want to make a comment. I know people are very sensitive about animals, but when you compare it to domestic violence and our first example, the truth is that people react much more strongly to somebody that harms an animal than to somebody that harms a woman or a child. Interesting. And I think that's a real tragedy. That is a real tragedy. Well, in doing this research about him, I didn't know too much about him, but he grew up in Newport News, which is not too far from me, and he grew up in, in the projects in Newport News. And it's a part of Newport News that people who grew up there and lived their whole life there don't even drive near these projects because it's so dangerous. It's just a really, it's a real dangerous place to live. And that's where he grew up. He, you're right, he didn't have role models. And he was exposed to a culture that he didn't have any choice about that. And I think in this culture, dogfighting was a part of it. Yeah, I agree. I I know Mike wants to comment, but I totally agree. I mean, I, I actually think he's one of the good guys. He did a terrible thing, but he paid the price. And he paid a dear price. He did pay a price. And I think he's seeing things differently now. That's my sense. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think that was a, a remarkable explanation by Kelly. I I agree with her. On balance, Michael Vick has been a net positive. He's elevated this issue. That's not what he intended to do in being involved in dogfighting, but he certainly elevated this issue and made people aware of it in this country. And 
I think, made significant progress towards further marginalizing that practice. And, and to be blunt, there's a lot of people in this country who, who fight dogs and they fight roosters. And, you know, it's, it is part of our culture. So he's made a positive impact if you look at it over the long term. And I think it speaks to the power of somebody acknowledging what they've done, taking responsibility for it, and then going back into that same domain and trying to make a difference. I think he stands as a role model, especially for young kids who come from similar backgrounds. I would like to say, however, that, you know, I'm the, the NFL every now and then does something that is incredibly ham-handed and I think they could have, you know, it was, clearly was their choice to make him an honorary Pro Bowl champion. And I think they blew it in that regard. I don't think they should have extended that honor to him, given his background. Because it, I think in many ways, this, this last chapter, because now he's retired from football, this last chapter is going to diminish what he has done and what he has become over time because that's what people are going to focus on. And oh, by the way, this is media-driven. You know, people who are in uh, the news industry know that they can get eyeballs with this kind of story and they can sell a lot of copy, get a lot of clicks. So this one, this one falls directly into that category. But I think the NFL could have played it a lot better. Are you saying that this negative publicity about him being a, one of the, um, what is it? Honorary Pro Bowl. Yeah. Uh, captain, I guess is the term. So the controversy surrounding that is, is going to be what lingers in people's minds? Yeah, it's going to diminish what he's done. And, and I think Kelly's absolutely right. He's done good things and he's elevated this issue and he's made it, you know, he's made it clear that, yes, it exists and no, it's not a good thing. And um, there's, there's a lot of goodness that has flowed from that. Yeah, I think he's really done a turnaround. And also he, he leads uh, camps for kids now, football camps. Right, And I, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that he's talking, as he's talking about technique, I hope he's also talking about character to these kids, because that's important. Yeah. Well, given, given kind of his public persona now, that's certainly part of his approach, certainly part of his, uh, his angle when he, when he coaches these young kids. And just by being there, his presence and his example are, are the most powerful ways in which he speaks. Stick with us. We've got one more scenario for you. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. We're talking about the path to redemption here. Our final scenario is the Wounded Warrior Project, which is one that interests me because over the years I've donated a lot of money to this organization in honor of my father, brother-in-law, and my uncles, all veterans. I haven't given anything since March 2016, however, because that's when the charity's board of directors fired the CEO and COO amid allegations they allocated the nonprofit's money towards lavish and expensive team building exercises and personal enrichment. Retired Army General Michael S. Lennington was then hired as CEO at a salary of $280,000 a year. That's significantly less than the $473,000 and $369,000 a year that the previous CEO and COO had gotten. At least 12 employees made at least $147,000 a year also. Lennington said aspects of media coverage have been exaggerated, especially accusations that Wounded Warrior Project does not reach out to help veterans and that they spent $3 million on an all-hands meeting 
in which 500 employees gathered in Colorado in 2014. The nonprofit group makes tens of thousands of calls to veterans each year, Linnington said, and the amount spent on the conferences in question was less than a million. Wounded Warrior Project no longer holds events like that and already has increased the scrutiny and controls it has on spending for travel. My sources for this information were the Washington Post articles and cbsnews.com. So, Mike, has the Wounded Warrior Project walked the path of redemption, and can we trust them again? Oh, this one makes my blood boil, Marna, because I, I watched this closely. They were such a conspicuous part of the veteran landscape, and I actually was stationed in Colorado when all of this went down. I worked just down the street from the hotel in question, which is the Broadmoor which is one of the most exclusive hotels and complexes in our country. I think there's a commonality between the last story, the last scenario, and this one, in that, you know, when you start talking about pets or vets, you can really <laughs> access people's pocketbooks. And Wounded Warrior Project knew that, and they did it very, very deliberately. And they had the benefit of a lot of good consultants, and they had a remarkable logo, and they created really good uh, advertisements, which they blanketed the landscape with. And they collected an incredible amount of money. $800 million is the number I've heard. Wow. Which is just amazing. And being part of that community, being a veteran, being a disabled veteran, I know how these things can be used to good effect. And given what they were able to bring in from well-meaning American citizens... I think their failure to deliver a, you know, a, a commensurate benefit from everything they were given is absolutely inexcusable. Perhaps the organization has changed. I don't know that much about it now. Um, I've, I've written it off personally. Um, there's a lot of other good organizations out there that I think make a far greater difference uh, with the dollar that's donated by a well-meaning American. I just give a shout out to one which for example the the wounded warrior project was putting about 60 percent of its revenues into programming so 40 percent was staying in-house for overhead and all these other things they talk about that's pretty high 40 percent yeah oh it's huge i mean uh, and I'll, i can talk about that in a minute but you know an organization that i that has been of huge benefit to me personally for example is the disabled american veterans their ratio is 96% of their revenues go into programming, 4% into overhead. Wow, so, quite a difference. Yeah, as a, as a donor, when I look at these things, I always look up, you know, and there are many good resources out there. One is GuideStar, for example. Another one is the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance. And they, they literally rate these organizations, and you can go in and see, you know, how much they brought in, how much they delivered to veterans, how they delivered that, that's really important. And then what did they spend in-house on publicity, on advertising, on salaries, on junkets like this one we talk about in this scenario. You can be a very informed donor, and I think you have to do that because there are millions of organizations out there that are going to tug at your heartstrings, and that's intentional on their part. You want to know for real what they're doing with your money. Yeah. So. Now, I think the original CEO and COO said that their model was they had to spend money to make money, and they increased their clout and their visibility, and therefore brought in more and more donations. That's why their overhead was so high. What do you think about that? Yeah, just a 
an extreme lack of good judgment, (laughs) um, (laughs) which I think is very charitable, to do what they did. And when you start to, to really unpack how they spent money, it clearly was far more. So I look at it, is it focused on the services they deliver to veterans, or is it focused on the growth and betterment of that organization? And I think it's the latter in this case. And they got their priorities upside down. Yeah. I'd also just, I mean, in, in a situation like this, you have to look at the board of directors. They bear some responsibility because they hire and fire CEOs and COOs. And if either the wrong people were on that board or the board was asleep at the wheel, they were not paying attention because they let this happen. Yes, they were certainly making some tone-deaf decisions. Kelly, what do you say? Yeah, I agree with everything that Mike said. I think, number one, as a donor, you want to give intelligently and do your homework. Like Mike said, there are some great resources. Mike mentioned several. I would also mention Charity Navigator. Consumer Reports every year does an article. One recently came out November 22nd, 2019, Best and Worst Charities for Your Donations. Um, They outline what you should be looking at as a donor. I definitely think that this situation uh, with the Wounded Warrior Project is an example of corporate greed, board of directors not fulfilling its fiduciary duty. I don't think we even get into forgiveness. I, I feel like forgiveness really relates to an individual and a you know kind of a person we all make mistakes we all slip but in the business setting i think we need to hold a business to a much higher standard because you have a group of individuals the board you've got leadership you just have a number of people that ought to be not asleep at the wheel that ought to be doing their jobs and that just totally didn't happen here And the situation was so bad, as you pointed out, Marna, that you had dozens of employees who were reaching out to different organizations to share concerns. And you even had the government get involved. Congress, Senator Grassley, you know, of the Senate and Judiciary and Finance Committee did a huge, it was like a 500-page report on Wounded Warrior Project and concluded that they were only spending about 68% of donor dollars on programs for veterans and found a whole list of other accounting issues and, you know, spending excessive monies on travel and staff events. Uh, they had about $65 million in a long-term trust that was just sitting there. Wow. And they misled donors and led them to believe that was being spent on veterans. And this was determined by Congress. So I think we have to trust but verify. Now, as far as what I give to Wounded Warrior Project now, I don't know. I would do my research. If the You know, if the company has truly turned things around and is highly rated, several of the, you know, like at Charity Navigator and Consumer Reports or some of the the measurement organizations that um, Mike set forth, I might consider it. But I would be hard-pressed to do so because I'd be concerned, you know, about about the corporation and their values. Right. Buyer beware. Well, under the new CEO, General Lennington, retired Army General, He's restructured, he's eliminated positions, they've reduced salaries of some employee positions, they've improved their outreach, they've tried to rebrand. So, Mike, can they ever regain your confidence? This is a very crowded space. It has become an industry to care for vets, and some people do it well, 
and some organizations do it well, some organizations do not. One of the criticisms of this organization, and perhaps they've changed, is that, you know, it was kind of a lot of one-and-done activities. So, you know, they'd send vets on a trip, you know, a great trip with great experience and lots of people who were very supportive, but that was it, you know. And I know enough disabled veterans and wounded veterans to realize that this is not this is not a one-and-done kind of thing. It needs to be some sort of continuing presence and continuing influence in people's lives. So if you can't figure out how to deliver services in that manner, then I don't think a donor should look at an organization that doesn't get serious about really making a difference for vets. Again, I see this as a play to just separate people from their money and uh, far more interested in the corporate uh, benefit as opposed to delivering benefits to veterans. So I don't think there is redemption here because there's a lot of great other other great organizations to give if you care deeply about veterans. You can say the same thing about just about any other cause in our society. Kelly, do you think there's redemption? I do. I absolutely do. I, I agree. I understand Mike's I understand Mike's position totally and respect it. I agree that there's a lot of a lot of really good nonprofit organizations in the space to give to. So why not just give to them? On the other hand, I think Wounded Warrior Project has made a lot of changes um, and corrections. So I wouldn't preclude giving to them. I would just look at and be an intelligent donor and look at the statistics and determine if they're giving enough of their money to veterans. And as Mike said, what is that money going to? I don't know. You guys know much better than me what veterans need. And and I think what I'm hearing Mike say is that some kind of ongoing long-term support is more in order than, you know, a quick trip or fun event. Right. That's something really meaningful to look at, Mike. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. So I, like I said, I haven't given them any more money since the controversy. If I do, I'll be taking a good hard look at the organization again. I think on that note, you know, and since folks have listened this long, I think it's important if you want to give money to an organization, take a second, think about it, and given all the access we have to all the information we do these days, go out online, go to one of these organizations that that rates and evaluates charities, and if they are not spending at least, at least 75% of their intake on the program that they supposedly care about, So in other words, 75% is going to services, that's a minimum, and a maximum of 25% is going to the organization for its maintenance and uh, its uh, growth. If you don't see that ratio, you shouldn't be giving them money. I, for example, think that number is very low, but that's what people in the nonprofit charitable community talk about. It's got to be 75%. Okay, that's good guidance. Yeah, I think that's the takeaway from this scenario is do your homework when you're thinking about making a charitable contribution. Make sure that the organization's aligned with your values and that it's efficiently dispensing the contributions in a manner that you agree with. Can I say one more thing, Marna? Sure. Um, I also think that some of the online giving platforms charge processing fees on donations. So watch out for that. Sometimes they can be 3% or more, and that reduces the impact of your gift. So you may want to just make sure you give directly, be aware of that. And and maybe we could even um, put on the website some of the, you know, intelligent giving 
links so folks can look at them and see if they find them helpful in their decision-making process as far as donations are concerned. Yes, I'll definitely post some of those links on the website. I didn't know about that online processing fee, 3%. That could add up. Good information from both of you. Thank you. We'll be right back with Ethics and Etiquette Endnotes. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. This is the Endnotes portion of our show. It's where we like to leave you with something to think about for the coming week based on the topic for this week. I'd like to tell you about a new book and a documentary about the dogs which were rescued from the dogfighting ring that Michael Vick was associated with. There's a documentary called The Champions. It was directed and produced by Darcy Dennett, and it's the inspirational story about the pit bulls rescued from the brutal fighting ring of Michael Vick and those who risked it all to save them, despite pressure from PETA and the Humane Society to euthanize the dogs. You can see this documentary on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, and YouTube. I'll also post a link to their website. And the second thing is a book which recently came out called The Lost Dogs, Michael Vick's Dogs and Their Tale of Rescue and Redemption. The reviews say this is graphic and disturbing as it recounts the torture and treatment of the dogs, but it ultimately celebrates the courage and resilience of the pit bulls and the people who work to rehabilitate them. And that book is on Amazon or wherever you get your favorite books. We'll put a link to both of these on our website. Kelly... Do you have an end note for our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Marna. With regard to forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't mean that you condone somebody's actions. I think forgiveness just frees you from that person or the action that harmed you or that hurt you or your family. I just think forgiveness can be a really freeing therapeutic action, not to sound corny, um, And really hate and anger are just emotional parasites that hurt us. They destroy our joy in life. And even studies have shown that it hurts an individual's health because you have all this stress response and physically and mentally it's harmful. You know, I would just say that as to forgiveness. Often it's not our role to forgive. You know, it's really up to a higher power. That would be my end note, Marna. So what is our role in the forgiveness scenario? I think that all we can do is respond to what we experience in life and what happens to us and deal with that. And I think life is too short to waste our time and energy hating someone. It's just as important for the person who has harmed you or you feel has harmed you, you know, just as important to you as it is to them to forgive them. Yeah. I even think it's something that should be done whether the person says they're sorry or not. Oh, that's a tough one. It is, but I just think life is too short to behave any differently. Yeah. I was just having a conversation with a friend who was resentful about something that happened to her years ago, and I, I kept suggesting that she let it go, and she was objecting. But the next day, she came back and said, well, I'm going to take your advice, and I'm just going to stuff it down. <laughs> and I said... Oh, wait a minute. I didn't say stuff it down. (laughs) I said, let it go. That's different. Let it go. That's a form of forgiveness, too. It's only hurting her. It's only destroying her. Whatever happened long ago or whoever that other person is, they've moved on. Oh, yeah. They could care less. It's not harming Mm -hmm. them. Take the advice from Frozen and let it go. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Mike, you wanted to uh, share a an end note, didn't you? Yeah, I'd like to highlight something Kelly said earlier that really struck me and thought it was brilliant. That's why I like doing this podcast with her. And that I know. was she's that so wise, isn't she? She is. She's remarkable. No. Nope. So 
<laughs> Not really. <laughs> Come on, Kelly. What she said was that, you know, individuals can find a path to redemption, but corporations in most cases cannot. And I think there's some real wisdom there. So if I look at our first two scenarios today, I, I see a path to redemption. I don't see one for an organization that has betrayed the public trust as wounded warriors did. Corporations are not people. So I just wanted to bring that out, make sure folks remember that from what Kelly said. Yeah, that's really powerful stuff. Don't be swayed by those impressive television commercials. Do your homework. Thanks to both of you, Mike and Kelly. What about you? Do you have a redemption story to tell us? Or do you have a question about today's discussion? Write us a comment or leave a voicemail. You can do both at our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. If you want to support what we're doing with this podcast, please recommend it to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marta Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us. We enjoyed having you. And please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.